it's difficult when you first get into Hamlet because the temptation is to say the language is, is difficult. It's, it's a bit much. It's overly complicated. I'll just hold on to like the narrative thread, in which case you get a melodramatic, tragic story. However, it's when you start to delve into the language itself and really go, and I'm going to spend time to figure out what I feel like this line is saying, when you really like, that's, that doesn't make sense that Hamlet would do that there. But it's funny, because Shakespeare's so convincing and so brilliant, you're never going, it's because he's bad. You always feel like there's a purpose behind it. And I think when the kids pressed into that, they began to move beyond um, initial response. Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. I am so excited to be joined today uh, once again by my friend Jordan Dobbins. Jordan Dobbins, we call him the master of literature. Uh, we call, <laughs> Strike that we call from the record, the, please. Please. <laughs> uh, Shakespeare's best friend. Some people call you Shakespeare's best friend. I'm Jordan his bosom Dons. buddy. <laughs> we, uh, you know, this podcast, Once Upon a Time, started in part with the dream of making literature and things that were typically considered sort of high art accessible to regular people living regular lives. And that became almost like a growing conviction that without good things coming into our lives that are not driven by, I don't know, the urgent impulses of the moment or of the political climate we happen to be in, that without those things, it's hard to develop personhood. It's hard to develop like a, a, a rich sort of substantial self. Um, you can have faith and you can still get completely bandied about and driven by all sorts of other agendas, sometimes because of your faith um, being directed in other ways, especially political, as we've seen in the last several years. Um, and it became like us, oh man, I don't think I don't think a world of beauty is is just this for some hobbyists or for some people who happen to do master's degrees at Oxford. Um, I think this world of beauty is a part of the Christian life that is that we want to try to encourage to be brought more centrally into more people's lives. Many who think it's just not for them, it wasn't brought to them that way, it was never, they were never given space and time or introduced to it in a way that sounded like it was for anybody but sort of this um, slightly detached or this sort of self-important uh, group of people who, who talked about such things. Um, we've been pushing back against that, sometimes directly, um, other times just in the way we uh, sort of meander in some of our conversations. But, but there are moments in which we, we hit it head on by just going after a beautiful work of literature or an author or something that has just moved us and shaped us. There can be no greater author uh, to try to make a little more accessible or uh, interesting to the average person uh, in their busy lives than Shakespeare himself. And yet the name itself comes loaded with all those same sort of almost stiff arms to, that makes it feel like, oh, I can't 
even fathom or process those those sentences. I don't even know what he's saying. I don't know what this is. This does not feel like it's for for me or for us. Um, today we are going to talk Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and we're not just going to talk Shakespeare and and do a little biography. We'll do a little bit of that, um, but we're going to be talking about Shakespeare in particular, Shakespeare's Hamlet. We're going to be talking about sort of I don't know maybe the most important, maybe the most popular. Probably the most popular. The most popular, for okay, sure. For sure. Of all his plays, um, several different uh, movie versions in the last couple of decades. People may have stumbled across some of them better than others. Um, we are going to bring you into the world of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, we can do this not because we're special people, but because we get to teach Shakespeare's Hamlet. Yes. Um, and have recently done so. Yeah, and just finished. And I will say, you know, I hear this especially uh, from your students. Um, well, I heard this yesterday from one of my own students. Doctor was the first book I've read at Thank Pacific you. <laughs> Just junior year, third year, <laughs> so many incredible things. Uh, but if I'm honest, this is the first one, line by line, on my own, cover to cover, I actually read the whole thing. Uh, follow up, what did you think? I actually loved it. And that that has become a, a normal kind of saying around the yard that Hamlet is hitting students in a way that they did not expect. A part of it is surely your and hopefully my um, joy and excitement and interest in it. But it's the work itself that if you are going to give it time, this thing is going to reward you. For sure. And we have been able to sort of walk slowly through Hamlet recently with our students yet again. And and it's just had this impact on the kinds of students who didn't think that was for them necessarily or this was their subject or or whatever. So that's that's a little bit of why. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a little bit of, of why we're doing this. But but let's let's back up to go forward and let's just talk a little bit about William Shakespeare uh, a couple, a couple fast, fast facts, fast and, then, facts. and then you can maybe give a little more texture between the fast facts. I'll patter the facts with <laughs> texture. <laughs> Born in 1564 in Stratford upon Avon. Stratford upon Avon. Describe it real quick. Stratford upon Avon uh, is beautiful little kind of town. Dare you over say there. a beautiful little hamlet? Oh, you could. You'd be wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, it's. It's upon the River Avon. Uh, it's actually there. I once paddleboarded to Stratford-upon-Avon. Let's go. Um, I had an Airbnb that was 40 minutes from the river, so it took too long to get there. <laughs> it was not a good choice. Um, but it now home of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, uh, many productions go on there. Home of the Shakespeare birthplace. Wonderful little place for retreat. Uh, you know, like people often go there for a weekend, see a play, have some good food, go see the historical sites around there. He's born in 1564, Stratford-upon-Avon. He dies, famously, on his... Birthday. <laughs> <laughs> on his birthday. Yeah. Fun fact. Happy sad birthday. fact. Fun fact. Yeah. Uh, which is April 23rd, 1616. Yeah. So he lives, what is this, all of 40, 50s... What am I doing here? <laughs> oh no you used to teach math give so. me the years again give me the years okay, again let's 1564, go 1564 on the bridge we ain't cutting none of this all of this is gonna be cut 1564 <laughs> to 1616 okay I'm gonna go 40, 40 takes no, us to 36, the 4 no 36 50. takes us to 1600 16 yeah. more 40 52 yeah Matt 52 that's right that's where I go wow, wow. 52 alright I feel like we should just end there yeah um, <laughs> we proved something I don't know what it was yeah he lives through the part of the Elizabethan um, era right Queen yeah. Elizabeth on the throne the woman yeah. herself yeah um 
Ends no, with James, you, I believe, oh does gosh, he? Oh gosh, he does. Yeah, he makes yep. it into the Jacobean era. Uh, James comes over from Scotland, a little bit of a different vibe. Early 17th century there. Um, Elizabeth I reigns from 1558 to 1603. So he has about a decade, a little over a decade of, of writing under the, under the time of, uh, of James. Um, and he writes Hamlet in 1600. So on the high side of Elizabeth's reign, but still the Elizabethan era. Hamlet's written in 1600. Now, Hamlet. What do we know about um, the composition of Hamlet? Or why, why Hamlet? Why is Hamlet the thing? What do people say about Hamlet? Um, he wrote many plays, many famous plays. Macbeth, Lear, the tragedies in particular tend to sort of show up first. And then the longer you think about it, the comedies are unbelievable. Um, Every kid, uh, most high schools, ours just recently, Midsummer Night's Dream is always on the dais. Yeah. Uh, Romeo and Juliet is like a rite of passage for being a teenager. Um, like there, I mean, there's so many standards. What is it about Hamlet that, that says uh, we must teach this? We mm. must slow down and walk <laughs> students through this particular play? Uh, Samuel Johnson said of Hamlet, its distinctive quality was variety. Uh, and so one of the things about Hamlet is it is quite literally a roller coaster. Uh, hilarious, deeply tragic, so many different themes. Uh, I believe, I'm not, I'm not sure who said this, it might have been Hazlitt or someone else, but he says the Elizabethan tendency um, of all-inclusiveness is very much part of this play. So it's, it's Shakespeare really stretching his muscles. Um, also, I guess tied to that is the point at which his life, uh, the point in his life in which he wrote it. Nice. That'll do. Does that make During sense? During which? <laughs> During which. Wow. Yeah. We're doing well. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, he, uh, a personal tragedy just preceded it. His son, Hamnet, uh, dies young. Say his name again. Hamnet. Okay. Dies young. Yeah. Tragic circumstances, obviously. Tragic circumstances. Um, and it, this really begins one of the most prolific parts of Shakespeare's career and many dark uh, but deeply moving works. Hamlet, Macbeth, I believe, Leah, yeah. I believe Othello maybe even as well, um, all in very quick succession. Um, but it's, it's Hamlet which seems to um, capture the imagination of the British peoples. Even a hundred years later, people are talking about Hamlet as the one people want to see, mm. which is um, interesting because you would think the people, the masses might prefer the comedy, uh, but there's something about this that captures the British imagination and continues to capture the human imagination up until this very age, the kids uh, doing it uh, last semester at Pacifica. Something... Uh, you can't quite put your finger on it, but there's something there that you want. You're drawn to. You're, it's 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 a puzzle in many ways. This play, I think, and and it's important to remember it's a play. This is one of the reasons that uh, these plays have become less accessible to people. Is that they were never they were never meant for some some elite upper crust academic sort of environs, right? This is. A, this is performed at the Globe Theater. Um, you're talking about 3,000 people. You're talking about people of any kind of uh, social class, any kind of ability to pay almost nothing, the groundlings. You're talking about a collection of uh, something that represents sort of the entirety of a town or like a cross-section of just ordinary life being 
entertained by these plays more like a movie house more like the theater like more like going to the movies maybe for us as far as like a popular uh form of art not some elite upper crust removed form of art is that fair oh yeah totally i mean it cost about as much of a as a loaf of bread to get in uh down at the groundlings and then you'd have ambassadors coming over to the england booking out the top tier um and it was somewhere you read accounts of like elizabethan theater and it's somewhere between a rock concert and a kind of a, 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 a i guess a movie theater the stories of french um uh theater troops coming in and playing and people not liking it and throwing chairs at them you know it's like and there's uh, and there's also stories of people working in around london saying he used to be a good worker he's addicted to the theater now you know like he's only ever there it's it's there's a definitely a moral component to what's going on as well in in the some of the discourse surrounding it that's interesting so hamlet's performed uh, 1600 on the stage in this way it it has a longevity and a popularity uh, when many other things sort of come and go as far as even Shakespeare's own canon is appreciated. Um, how do you bring people into the world of Hamlet? How do you bring them into the world of the play? How do you set it up for students? Or how would you how would you describe it to anyone who had not yet read it or encountered it as a way of saying here's one way in? I think one of the things that I try and impress upon the students is that this is this is not a simple thing in front of you. There is so many interconnections within the play in each and every line. The language almost feels like a character. The more I re read it, the more I feel like um, there's all the characters in the play. And then at the same time, there's Shakespeare as the grand character of them all. Mm. Um, it's incredibly self-reflexive and uh, meta at many points. It's a play about acting in many ways. Um, the main story is also one that is intriguing. It's a play about a royal murder and a ghost which comes to uh, reveal the truth, or so we think it might be trying to reveal the truth. Um, the first three acts are centered around this ghost, which basically comes uh, to tell Prince Hamlet that his father, King Hamlet, has been murdered by his brother. Um, but what's very interesting is one of the first things that Prince Hamlet says is, oh, my prophetic soul, I knew it. And as my kids in one of the, uh, one of the, one of the kids in, in one of the, my periods that I taught says, oh, it's confirmation bias. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> that's one way of putting it. It really is. I knew that this was going to happen. The ghost never talks to anyone else other than Prince Hamlet in the whole play. Other people see him, but no one else hears him. And it opens up this whole web of intricacy. Do we trust the ghost? Do we not trust the ghost? And Shakespeare always keeping us off balance just at the point where we think we're getting it. The ghost completely disappears mm. for the last two acts of the play. So you're just never knowing what's going to happen next. And I mean, in some ways, right, the appeal is, is I mean, Harold Bloom has said many things, but he said, he said, like, Hamlet is the most real person he's ever met. Right. Like that there is something about the way that Shakespeare brings this character to life. He's it's he's so human. And, and I think this tells in the play's popularity and in its accessibility, um, whatever age you happen to be, is the things that roll through. And it's not overly self-serious or just a tortured psyche working on itself. It's really funny. I mean, it's his, his, his cleverness, his wit, mm -hmm. um, his, his way with language, right? Like his ability to, as you said, sort of play 
and to be almost like a an actor on his own stage in this way um, is, is somehow brings forth a vision of personhood and the complexity of just being a person in the world. Even though the ex- circumstances are extraordinary, there's these bizarre moments of real resonance and access for those of us living rel- relatively simple or direct or ordinary lives compared to his circumstances where it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, like I've thought that. Like so many of our discussions in the classroom are like, you know, end up being people talking about life as a whatever year old, you know, because that's what it's like, or that's how people do this, or that's how I remember this happening. And like the ease with which people sort of almost float into his mind and back into theirs is an extraordinary thing. Not always true, even of some of the great plays, that there is a character that everyone feels somehow at certain moments completely at home with, even though he is in some ways, maybe completely insane, right? Yeah. Like, or losing his mind. Um, this character may be the most fully drawn in some sense um, in Shakespeare's work, which is probably to say in Western literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet, as you say, uh, the scenario is where are we? What exactly is the, the setup is we have the, the death of King Hamlet. Yep. Uh, and this play centers on Prince Hamlet. Um, we have the, we have the, the, the figure of Claudius who the ghost accuses of, of, of killing the King. Um, but we don't know that, uh, early days, right? Nope. Um, King Claudius now has taken the throne, married Hamlet's mother, um, incestuous sheets. Incestuous sheets. So this is this is something that is expressed a f- more than a few times throughout the play. Yes, that this may be like the highest violation, right? Yeah. Um, In fact, it's probably the predominating bugbear, if I can call it that, that Hamlet has with the whole situation mm-hmm. is that his mother is sleeping with his uncle. Right. He loves to um, go on these whole uh, little sections of wordplay where he makes clear the confusion of his. Uh, uh, what is it? I believe it's his uh, uncle, uncle father, as he often likes to call him. Right. Uh, or he will, in the middle of the syllabus, go, my uncle, my father's brother, if you're not following <laughs> me. Following. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and the speed with which, after the death of the king, the speed with which the mm-hmm. the marriage takes place is, is revolting to him. Yes. And doesn't seem to bother hardly anybody else. Yes. Right? Um, so you have this whole political drama of a court, right? Mm-hmm. And of the political of people not sort of showing or performing how they might feel because there's a way you must carry on in public, whether as the, the royal or whatever. Um, <laughs> I don't know, just, just thought of spare. All of spare. We won't go there. Us. We won't go there. We're not going to go there. It's but- available at all good bu- bookshops, <laughs> I hear. <laughs> We're not going to go uh, toward Prince Harry. Oh, but dear me. Although, quick, although, quick I will, very quick yes, sign out. To my shame, I'm yeah. listening to Spare. Of course you are. Um, and at the, <laughs> at the opening this to it. This is the tell-all of Prince this Harry. This is the tell-all the of Prince Harry. royal. Boy, does he tell all. Um, uh, William is the heir. The second born is the Spare. Is the Spare, right. Yeah. And uh, it opens with him, his brother, and his father walking over a royal gravesite. And you can't help but feel just, I mean, it feels Shakespearean a little bit. If it weren't so poorly written <laughs> and uh, just basically uh, about, um, I'm not going to go into it. Okay, okay, okay it doesn't okay. matter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we have this setup where, and, and we also have this thing at the time where revenge tragedies are 
are a thing. Tragedies are a thing, but revenge tragedies are a thing. And revenge tragedies, at least in this moment in English theater, are bananas. Like, yeah. way over the top, uh, almost... Quentin Tarantino. Yes, exactly. So, sort of psycho levels, amounts of violence. Um, but revenge tragedies seem to kind of have their day in moments in which people are saying, hey, you know what? The standard sort of stabilizing authorities or institutions around us are not that reliable. There's something, yeah. something rotten in the state of Denmark, right? There's something yes. amiss amongst the places whether it's the recent for reformation moment in england where all of a sudden wait are we catholic wait are we protestant which one is condemned to hell which one is going to heaven um the the destabilizing moment of the 16th century mm. carrying over into this early moment in the 17th century it's probably hard to recapture um you know going from a world that that had an orderliness to it at least at those high levels of institutional power um to a world that you know is it okay to just have a queen a queen that doesn't get married is it you know what does this even mean she has no heir and then we're gonna have a king come over from scotland pretty soon here in a few years and then what is that that used to be like these are the backward people from you know, the 909 who haven't you know don't know how to read or something and <laughs> yeah. and here comes this heavy scottish accent on the throne now i mean there's so many strange things that are uh uprooted or destabilized in this moment and revenge tragedy seems to just throw that in the face of anyone watching. Like, mm. you can't trust the law, you can't trust the thrones, you can't trust the, the Pope, you can't yep. trust the church, you can't trust anything. And so people are taking matters into their own hands and trying to set the world to rights, and that usually just makes everything worse. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, and think to think of the opening of Hamlet. Right at the beginning, Hamlet hasn't yet entered. He doesn't come into a later scene. And they're in complete darkness. The first lines are short lines saying, who's there? What's happening? People on the battlements. Uh, so they can't see and they're trying to communicate in this darkness. Um, and what they've done is they've brought in an academic, a rationalist. They, they bring in the great skeptic Horatio and they say, look, we've seen this ghost, but we'll believe it if you tell us we'll see it. So they're on the dark, they can't see each other. And then it completely inverts and they see this luminous ghost and the ghost refuses to speak to them. And it's in this moment, like all this confusion happens, like hit it with something. And <laughs> you like go to hit it, it's like, oh, he's incorporeal like the air. And you're like, oh, okay. And like he's like, speak to it, Horatio. And he's like, who are you? And the ghost just wanders off, right? But right there from the get-go to speak into what you're saying about the confusion that's there is Shakespeare's playing with those tropes and and well, it's not even tropes he's he, he's tr he's kind of like a surgeon trying to figure out why do we feel this way in the at the turn of the century like what on earth is happening can i somehow touch at some kind of truth of the soul of britain at this moment through this play and i love what you say about the ghost because it's sort of a it's a revelation that doesn't speak Yes, it's like a it's like a false epiphany. It's like a it, it's suggesting something is being shown or revealed or trying to be signified or indicated, and yet we don't know what that is. Mm. And as you say, it almost doesn't help as, that much when the ghost only speaks to Hamlet, no. and it's like. <sighs> So did he like, are you <laughs> Yeah. like, is that, is that just this, I knew it thing, you know, this, this, this prophetic soul, oh, my prophetic soul. Like I, I, this is what I was wanting to hear. No one else heard it, but I did. It's like, it's on, we're on the verge of something being revealed. And as you say, they're in the dark, they're on the battlements, they're watching because they are, they are thinking it's possible that young Ford and Bross, that there's going to be an invasion of their realm and a moment of weakness and transition between monarchs right yes. between kings right
right? Yeah. The death of the king. Maybe this is the hasty marriage and the, you know, we need a King Claudius because we need to make sure that we don't look weak with this other kind of nation yeah. or this other kind of thing around us that's going to attack us at a moment of weakness to try to take over our land. Yeah. And and the madness, the way that Shakespeare sets that up um, Hamlet in many ways is a hall of mirrors. Everybody seems to reflect everybody else, which is part of the issue because where does your own self begin and end when you see your own self in every single other person in the play? Um, and the structure is we have King Hamlet who's killed by his brother Claudius for the throne. And we have Prince Hamlet who um, was supposed to go to the throne as is revealed finally in act five, but he says Claudius gets in between me and the election. Then we have Norway and the exact same thing is happening. We have King Fortinbras, who is killed by King Hamlet, get this, on the birthday of Prince Hamlet. And his son, Prince Fortinbras, is on the warpath to take revenge for his father. And he comes to take revenge for his father. And who's on the throne? A sick uncle. And so we have this direct mirror world going on. Uh, and we won't ruin the end of the play, but there's some kind of convergence there. Like that's really the heart of the play in many ways. And then even more mirrors start to appear because um, as the play goes on, um, we have more deaths, which lead to more fathers having been died, which lead to more Hamlets who want more revenge. Mm. And we get to this point where we're like, well, what is even, what would justice even look like? Mm at this point and it's so interesting because it is like yeah it's a hall of mirrors and the mirrors start to like shatter and every little fragment has its own sort of angle of this reflection um and then and then and then revenge is all you know this is the the great debate or this is sometimes why uh, Hamlet as a figure is lampooned as being sort of just this existential teenager, you know, unwilling to really do anything, but just to just, you know, in his own little world, you know, in the dark, writing dark poetry, mm -hmm. you know, for his little soul and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But it but it is an extraordinary number of things that are in play when the ghost indicates uh, in no uncertain terms, you need to take revenge for me. This mm -hmm. is what happened. You need to act, swear that you'll do this. Like, m this must be something that you follow through with. And then Hamlet Hamlet's reluctant, at least reluctance might not even be the word, but um, his desire to try to make sure that this really <laughs> was something that he heard, yeah. right, becomes the whole thing. It, it, isn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't immediately become some passive, I'm afraid to do this thing. It's more like, wait a minute, was that just me or is that is that a real thing? And if it's a real thing, I need to know and then I need to do something about yeah. it and take revenge. So just that, that weird interval where mm -hmm. the revenge part is not totally certain that it's required or that the crime was even fully committed. Yeah. The fact that there is some kind of room there for him not to be positive. Yeah. Can you act <laughs> with 80% certainty if by acting it means taking someone's life in revenge for a crime they may not have committed or they 80% might have committed? Right. And boy, does he want to take revenge. Because he hated his uncle before he even found right. out they might have killed his right. father. Um, the classic line, he's just told by the ghost all this stuff. And the ghost leaves and he says, um, I will take revenge with wings as swift. And we're already, okay, or the falcon or something like that. With wings as swift as meditations or the thoughts of love. And right there, you're like, that's not the simile I was expecting. <laughs> he's like, I'm an angel of death. And you know how quick my wings are? Uh, thoughts of love and stuff, you know? <laughs> and right there is the problem, is yeah. that he's a man who can't take revenge, who's surrounded by people who can. Like, Prince Fortinbras is not... Um, uh, Hamlet is often lampooned, even in the play, for being 
unmasculine. For being not and, young Fortinbras. Yes. Tis unmanly grief yeah. is what they tell him. And Fortinbras is going around fighting over eggshells yeah. in Poland. Yeah. <laughs> and we have um, uh, even Polonius later in the play doesn't seem to have an issue with fighting. And yet Hamlet is like, I got to check. I got to check because what if this is a demon? Yeah. I, in many ways, uh, this is a play about possession, demon mm. possession. Mm. Because one of the great fears that characters have and Hamlet eventually has is, well, this, if, if, if a demon were to come present itself in a certain visage, I think he picked my dad and I think he'd tell me to do this. And so I need to somehow get to the truth of the matter. And of course, in great Shakespearean style, um, here, the way he decides to get to the truth is to perform a play in front of the king that exactly mirrors the events that happened according to the ghost. And he's going to watch the king's face and it's going to be the play that... Uh, uh, that catches the conscience of the king. So let's go after that then. So this is this one of many, but very meta moments of you're watching a play, a play is being performed within the play. And the old term was ekphrasis or ekphrasis in the Greek, which was a moment in a work of art in which the figures are observing a work of art. Mm -hmm. And you're observing them observe a work of art. And it suddenly makes you aware of how you're watching what you're watching, right? That you are observing a work of art. What are the limits, possibilities um, of what a work of art can do? Can a work of art reveal truth as Hamlet hopes this play will reveal whether or not Claudius is guilty by his reactions to this pretty silly, very much over the top, um, you know, uh, little, little performance. Mm. Um, and yet the, one of the questions we took up in the classroom was, you know, what does Shakespeare or any of us believe a work of art can do mm. like you know usually uh, in our time we think of it as it's escapist it's what you do to sort of shut your brain off it's or it's it's good if you have time for it but it, there's no way that art and beauty and these kinds of things or literature is essential right for life mm. in some sense right and and yet what we ended up talking about is is what Shakespeare seems to think this could do, uh, even for those watching this and, and being aware of themselves as watchers of a work of art or, or participants in that way, um, is that it could reveal truth. It mm -hmm. could reveal something about you via your reactions, which goes back to Aristotle's poetics, mm. where he said that basically something like affective communion happens when you're watching a tragedy in particular, mm. where you can watch things that you are yourself not participating in, and you can experience catharsis or a form of emotional recalibration that can be a form of actual wisdom, even though it wasn't your first-hand experience your experience of watching the tragedy on the stage is a form of valid experience for aristotle in that it can give you a form of wisdom that you did not have before you saw these characters make these decisions with certain consequences playing out the way that it did for aristotle uh, maybe different from plato famously for aristotle this is why the theater is wonderful this mm -hmm. is why it's worthy this is why it's not just this nice little side thing for those who who just have time for it um and so uh, hamlet shakespeare 
operating in a world in which there's a crucial thing that has to happen and it's all centered on whether or not it can be known and revealed to be true because of a performance of a play. Hmm. Um, how, how did you find maybe students or yourself wrestling with the role of, of, of the play or the theater or of a work of art in that way? Do, do you find that this is, this is sort of just ironic now because we don't view art and literature and these kinds of things in that way? Or is this, is this fundamental? Is this why people can't stop going to the movies or watching things and talking about premium television, all these kinds of things that it does actually shape us in fundamental ways. Do you think, do you think Shakespeare is sort of like saying too much about what art is, is capable of? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that, the, primarily the way we went in class is we talked a lot about the distinction between outward appearance and inner reality because one of the great difficulties that Hamlet has is that he sees an actor act before him and he goes, how is it that that guy who hasn't got an ounce of the tragedy that actually happened to me, how is that guy for Hecuba for nothing weeping like I should be weeping? Why is he feeling more than I'm feeling? And I think that's very much something that we feel today. Um, we Like people going to the cinema to feel or to see people feel, and yet we hear more and more that people are finding it harder to feel. They're becoming more cynical. And there's a feeling that perhaps a hardening of the heart like leads you towards uh, that Aristotelian desire to have some kind of emotional reaction to something even if it's not your own life in fact maybe it's easier to get kicked out of that hard-hearted cynicism by something that isn't directly your life that is fundamentally artistic um it even goes to the heart of um his interactions with his mother because she says well why why does it seem with you that you're grieving so much everybody's father has to die eventually and he says, rather seems. pointedly, seems. seems, seems, mother. It doesn't seem with me. I am grieving. And I think there mm. is the rub um, is what's the difference between seeming like something and actually being something? Because if all I have to go off with you sat across from me uh, is the words you speak, your body language, who you are, then if if I begin to lose faith in the fact that your outward appearance has anything to do with your soul and your inner appearance, mm. that's a massive existential issue for me mm -hmm. because anything that you can give me is only through your outward appearance. And so it's complete solipsism at that point. Mm. And Hamlet has this moment where I think we might still have that today where we go, I don't want to believe that because that is truly a dark universe if we're all just inner things with fake outer things and there's a disconnect what's that line in uh, orwell's politics of the english language when he's watching the guy speak oh it's like uh it's something along the lines like it's like language is speaking through him yeah which is back to sort of that idea of possession or per, per, like if, if if it's a if it's pure if you're the way you interact with people and live through your day and sometimes you feel this when you when you're talking to someone, especially maybe when in a group of someone, and then you like leave and you're like, what in the world? Like, what, yeah. <laughs> what was I saying? <laughs> like, what was I doing? Why, yeah. why did I 
sound like that? Why did I tell that story? Why did I like it can feel like there are moments in which you are almost out of body. Yes. This is just I'm like performing just what I think might have worked. Why did I do that? Like it can just have that very strange sense that in these ordinary moments maybe of just social life together you everybody has i think moments in which you're like what was that was that me that wasn't me yeah like what am i like am i does anybody know what i am inside Mm. here or am i am i performing something that is disconnected from what i actually feel Mm. how many times i'm just pretending like what is this am i just playing the thing um and and that's where that line comes from right um the play is the thing right like this is yeah the play is the thing to maybe reveal truth the plays the thing to maybe mask everything because if everyone is a player if everyone is just playing right then then it is also the way by which we obscure that inner reality or that inner hidden thing um and 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 orwell's on about you know the our language how our language like flows through us it's not even when it's when it's sloganized when it's institutionalized Mm -hmm. when it's you know the politician on the stage or or whatever or or the preacher on the stage and it's like whose language is this 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 is not that person this could be anyone what they're saying could be anyone they're being possessed by like a form of something but it's not them and you can feel it Uh, holden caulfield line you can feel that it's phony Mm. you can feel like there's something (laughs) off here about how you are talking and about how you're behaving in front of other people sometimes you see it in yourself sometimes you see it in people you know don't normally act like that and then you see them and sometimes mm. it, you start to look around and be like is that what we're doing mm. yeah <laughs> i think that really tracked with the kids yes. i think it tra- tracks with us yes i think and and especially like that sort of post-ish covid moment of like we all have these really weird like inner like moments of like our close people and the strains and struggles of being home and being away from sort of the matting crowd and then like re-emerging into the public space and re-emerging into i don't know in-person work environments and or campuses that had other people on them and stuff like that and it was a weird like cultural moment of, of being like okay uh is this a chance to be like not fake like Mm. this is a chance to like you know people are making decisions about like who are my real friends what do i really care about what do i really want to do with my life right all these trying to uh, trying to reconcile with have i been performing Mm. a life that is not actually me or is not anything i have connection with and if so why and why do i need to do that any longer yeah all those questions but like you say it could be revelation or it could be collapse could be despair could be confusion yeah and i think that's directly relevant um to the idea of well what would it even mean to ask the question was that fake what would it what would it look like to pass out to separate what is you and what isn't you and that question i think shakespeare poses is not as easy or as comfortable as we'd like it to be and that's one of that's really what Hamlet is going through throughout the whole play. He's like, how would I become a person and a person that I'm meant to be? And then this ghost comes along and what does he say? He does prob- probably the worst thing he can do without having the full facts. He says, I'm going to wipe away Every single thought I've ever had, everything I've ever learned, is going to be a blank slate. And on my soul and my heart, 
all I'm going to write is the words the ghost says to me, remember me. He downloads the ghost fully. Like he says, whether it's almost inconsequential whether it's his father or not. He goes, come into my brain now, possess me because myself isn't good enough. I need the father and he's already an image of the son right that's part mm -hmm. of it um he has this moment where he says he says look at claudius and look at the king and the joke is well genetically they're images of each other at least a little bit they're from the same parentage and hamlet's from this same parentage um and it, it's just this drastic searching for well how how might i figure out where i begin and end and one answer is i'm messed up i'm wrong I've got to get rid of everything that's me and start again. And maybe that will make me more me than I ever was. And I think we're meant to see the tragedy of that. That's not a healthy way to go. Um, in terms of how that works its way out, that's really the question that we have to ask ourselves throughout the play. Does Shakespeare present us with a moment of hope in the midst of all this? Uh, I think there's some good arguments for that hope. I think Horatio might be one of those hopeful people of all the people in the play horatio is the least hamlet of them all i would say and a good friend and a good friend he also has the possibility even though he'll reject it of this love relationship with ophelia which could be the one refuge of a, a person um, which has nothing particularly to do with all the things that are going on, all the things that Ghost says that may or may not be true. Yeah. Um, you know, she doesn't have some other agenda, at least that's easily discernible. Yeah. Um, and he had loved her, has, does, maybe. Um, the, the, the tragedy, as you said, it's important to remember, is maybe those avenues that seem to be potentially available to him and which he either cannot or, or refuses to sort of push into in a, in a certain way or or ask more of or or look for the help outside himself yeah. beyond his interactions with this with this ghost because it is interesting to say like maybe it maybe it is his father hmm. does it change does what does it change anything about him or where he ends up um whether or not it is right like that does almost seem to be the the moot point um and that love, that weird simile break there, um, love is there, friendship uh, with Horatio, uh, potential that love that is reciprocated at one point with Ophelia, of course. Um, there seem to be human connections outside of the political, outside of the family drama uh, that are at hand, and yet... I mean, you could say this about my, my sort of reference before, you know, people found when they were when they were home more that it was those nearest relationships mm. that they that they they broke that they couldn't stand that they couldn't mm. bear to be that close to the person even they were married to um and that is like these are supposed to be the lord's avenues of of mm. health life sanity processing you yeah. know personhood all these things um and and yet sometimes um they 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 get rejected at the very moment when we would need them most. Yes. Did you find that the students um, were able to go beyond sort of the the high school era feel of like this emotionalism, um, go beyond a, a Hamlet that is just sort of the angsty uh, teenager who doesn't know what to do with their life yet, 
um, yeah. <laughs> to something that, that opened a world that was bigger, maybe with all the warnings or caveats or questions, mm-hmm. but to a world that was bigger, that was outside of, a, of that moment of life that was just about life, about personhood, as you say, that they were able to see it um, beyond maybe the, the things that get highlighted when, when people want to just talk about how dramatic or how intense or how insane something is. Yeah. Yeah, I was constantly blown away um, both times I've taught Hamlet, uh, but specifically this semester, I think maybe because it was my second run at it, uh, so nothing to do with the kids there, I don't think. I think I presented it slightly more clearly the second mm-hmm. time. But yeah, that they were, you know what? It's difficult when you first get into Hamlet because the temptation is to say the language is, is difficult it's it's a bit much it's overly complicated i'll just hold on to like the narrative thread in which case you get a melodramatic tragic story however it's when you start to delve into the language itself and really going i'm going to spend time to figure out what i feel like this line is saying when you really like that's that doesn't make sense that hamlet would do that there but it's funny because shakespeare's so convincing and so brilliant you're never going it's because he's bad you always feel like there's a purpose behind it. And I think when the kids pressed into that, they began to move beyond um, initial response. Uh, They began to move beyond, oh, I can apply my own experience to this play, which is, there's nothing wrong with that per se. I wouldn't say that's some awful way of reading literature, but um, I'd say it's the easiest way of reading literature. And there's a way of almost when you just say, I'm just going to really try and understand the text with no caveats, it begins to give you stuff beyond that almost straight away. Um, And so I I think, for example, uh, there was one moment where um, somebody said, it seems like Hamlet is in love with his own sense of self-pity. And that right there, could only be convincingly said once you'd sat with the text because you can't say that glibly at the beginning and people often like, oh, it's you want to kind of be on Hamlet's side, but you're not. And then you have this realization that, oh yeah, he's feeding off his own tragedy, even though he hates the fact he has his own tragedy. And uh, there's some really deep and dark moments, but that doesn't necessarily negate the fact that he's also um self-obsessed at the same time you can be a a hurting individual like hamlet and feed that hurt with bad decisions about the way you react to that hurt at the same time and you're kind of stuck you end up stuck in this strange downward spiral um and that is probably one example that i can think of off the top of my head anyway of somebody going beyond the initial emotional response and that would be your encouragement let's say for someone who's listening hasn't read hamlet before um, is maybe to just in take enough time to try to hear, enjoy, read, stay with the language, not just the plot. Um, how how would you invite someone into this world? It doesn't have to do it for a class who has a busy life, but you know, um, Netflix or whatever else uh, on the weekends is a as a normal habit, and maybe on a given Saturday night or something could do could pick up this text instead um maybe a couple saturdays in a row it wouldn't take 
that long. It's, it's a play, so it's relatively short, a few hours probably to read. Yep. Um, so someone who's like, okay, I do take time for art, for, for stories, for, for entertainment, for enjoyment. Um, maybe I could pick this up and, and, and crack into it. How would you encourage or, or, or maybe give them some, some way of, of doing that or approaching that? Yeah, uh, um, there's no easy first reading of a Shakespeare play, that's for sure. Um, but I'm, I firmly believe if you treat it um, as you might a poem, for example, I mean, most of this is written in poetry. If you just go slow, um, I've, the edition that we use at school, which actually I've never used before, but I think it's quite a good one. It has the glossary on the side to help you fold your Shakespeare library, updated edition of Hamlet. It has some nice introductory stuff in there. Get that edition sit down and what I always say to the students is don't let yourself pass a line if you feel like you didn't quite understand it. That's fine to do in a novel, uh, you know, 400, 500 pages, a sentence isn't going to be the crux of everything. Um, I have no doubt that each, the more I read it, the more I'm convinced that each and every single word in Hamlet, um, if you changed it, would somehow change the play as a whole that's how intricately written that's how much of a genius i think shakespeare is and so go slow and it's okay to go really slow like if you sit down and you have 20 minutes and you know you might even just do a page or a couple of pages it's completely fine um have your kind of dictionary with you and, and just go through it and there's a joy to um something that can't be consumed just like a netflix show can be consumed um it's a deep joy because you're not in control of the speed at which you're reading it. Uh, you have your limitations are upon you and you just have to humble yourself to the book and go, no, I believe there's something good here. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to miss anything. I want to get every morsel. And if you go through the play at that pace and even go back if you need to, and just have no anxiety about finishing it anytime soon, um, then it's a it's a going to be a massively rewarding process for you um and then after i would definitely recommend reading it first and once you've been through that process um i mean you'll probably just want to read it again straight away um that's how wonderful it is but go and watch a production of it online there's some great ones there there's the david tennant version that we watch with the kids which is pretty good there's the infamous kenneth branner <laughs> version uh if you have a weekend uh and yeah, it's uh, that's also a whole other level of joy because you realize, oh, it, not only is this so beautiful and complicated and touching and heartwarming and cold and beautiful and ugly all at the same time, this variety that Samuel Johnson was talking about, people also have to embody this thing on the stage. And what a task that is and what a crazy, wonderful extra layer of enjoyment you can get from it once you've battled with the text and you go, okay, I think I have some ideas as to what's happening. Um, to watch other people interpret that text is drastically rewarding. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think there's only one way we could close this and that's with the text. Is there a soliloquy that you could um, find for us and, and, and read, us, uh, read us clear? There are a handful in particular of his own, of Hamlet um, reflecting, thinking, um many of them are are fairly well known some famous um what would you be drawn to 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 just give us some of this language as we close um i think 
because of the way our conversation ended up going, uh, there is a soliloquy that Hamlet speaks uh, near the beginning of Act 3, just after he's had this actor come and act in front of him. And he sees him and he has this moment of like, how, how can you show more emotion than me with what's happening to me and nothing's happening to you? It's all fake. It's all for nothing. And so that soliloquy of Hamlet is, is particularly beautiful. Um, and at the end, he has the moment of realization that he, he literally, I think there's a dash in the text and a pause and he goes, wait a second, maybe I can use this. Maybe I can uh, create some kind of trickery using this in order to catch the king in his business and know that I'm supposed to um, take my revenge. And so I, I think that will hopefully give us a nice taste of, of uh, some of the glories of, of Shakespeare's language. So act three, scene one? Yeah, so it's act two, scene two. Act two, scene two, take it away. I so goodbye to you. Now I am alone. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage waned, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing. For Hecuba, what's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I... A dull and muddy-metalled rascal, peak like John dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing. No, not for a king upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain? Break my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie in the throat as deep as to the lungs. Who does me this? Huh, <laughs> swounds, I should take it, for it cannot be, but I am a pigeon-livered, and lack gall to make oppression bitter. Or ere this, I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's offal. Bloody, bawdy villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain, oh vengeance! Why, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must, like a whore, Unpack my heart with words and fall a cursing like a very drab, a stallion. Fire upon it, foe, about my brains. Hmm. I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have, by the very cunning of the scene, been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tend him to the quick. If he do blench, I know my course. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, 
as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. Oh my, well. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, we implore you to pick up Hamlet. Yes, you won't regret it. You will not regret it. Jordan, thank you so much for helping us to get a little bit closer uh, to this beautiful, rich, and powerful poem.